Welcome to the audio version of the newsletter of the Christian Study Center of Gainesville. My name is Mike Sacassis, and I'm the Associate Director at the Study Center. During the summer months, the newsletter will be mostly on hiatus, but we will be posting a series of interviews with scholars and writers whose work we believe will be of interest to our listeners. In this installment, I'm delighted to share my conversation with Grace Olmsted. Grace is a journalist and writer whose work focusing on farming and localism has appeared in the New York Times, the American Conservative, Christianity Today, and the Wall Street Journal. Most recently, she is the author of Uprooted, Recovering the Legacy of the Places We've Left Behind. The book is part memoir, part history of an Idaho farming town, part reflection on place, community, and food. I hope this conversation entices you to pick up Uprooted for yourself. There's much that I learned through the book that we did not get the chance to touch on during our conversation. Grace is also the author of a monthly newsletter, Granola, to which you can subscribe using a link in the show notes. During our conversation, Grace referenced two recent papal encyclicals. You can also find links to these in the show notes, as well as to the home site of Norman Wiersba, professor of theology and ethics at Duke University. Wendell Berry was naturally an important part of this conversation of Grace's work, and I've linked also to Virtues of Renewal, Wendell Berry's Sustainable Forms, a book by Jeffrey Bilbro, which serves as a terrific introduction to Barry's work and vision. I hope you enjoy this conversation. You can look forward to others like it in the coming weeks. So welcome to everyone listening in uh, to the podcast of the Christian Study Center. My name is Mike Sacassis. I'm the Associate Director. And today I'm extremely pleased to have Gracie Olmsted with us, the author of a recent book, Uprooted, Recovering the Legacy of the Places We've Left Behind. Gracie, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us a little bit about the path from Idaho to journalism. Um, and you were, you were based in D.C. for a while. Is that still um, the area where you, you call home now? My husband and I live in rural northern Virginia currently. We lived in Alexandria for about five years while he was stationed at Andrews Air Force Base. And then around the time his enlistment ended, moved out this direction to be a little closer to some of his family who live out here and to have a little more space to grow a garden and such. But I grew up in rural Idaho and came out east to go to college out here. I went to a small classical liberal arts college uh, where I studied journalism. I loved writing from a very young age and had a desire to use that passion to perhaps serve at a human rights organization or some other space in which raising awareness and fighting for the dignity of human beings was at the forefront of uh, the organizations I had in mind, places like International Justice Mission and others that were headquartered in DC. And so moving out here was both an opportunity to grow, hopefully, my passion for writing and to hopefully get a placement at uh, one of the organizations I was really passionate about at the time and and still care very much about. But as I uh, got internships at newspapers while at college and began to do more writing and reporting, I found the opportunities to write about very serious, important issues that touch on human dignity that are vital to local as well as international flourishing were um, 
just legion. There were so many different things to be interested in and to perhaps uh, make a difference with as a writer. And so um, I got an internship at the American Conservative straight out of college, which turned into a job. And I was very lucky because it was and is very hard <laughs> to get a job working at a magazine in Washington, D.C. And um, the opportunities continued to uh, go from there. I found while I worked there, and I touch on this slightly in the book, that there was a lot of interest in uh, being a kid from farm country. There were not a lot of other kids in the area or young people who perhaps could say they had a grandfather or a parent who had been a farmer. And so that gave me a sense of novelty in the eyes of my peers. That was um, both extraordinary and very strange to me. And I found that there were lots of opportunities to talk about what it meant to come from a rural area of the country in a place that um, is still sparsely populated enough in many ways to um, be something of a curiosity in a place like Washington, D.C., and so I think a lot of those experiences, along with the changes I was observing whenever I flew home to Idaho, prompted me to write this book and to think very seriously about change, loss, and uh, what we might owe to the places that raised us, the places we've loved and the people who've loved us. I wonder if, if you might talk a little bit about how how you thought about this sort of theologically or from um, a more Christian perspective in terms of, of the vocation. And, and then maybe later, I, I'd love to talk a little bit about just commitment to place in, in sort of theological perspective. But um, I guess part of the question here is how, how did you find um, navigating some of these worlds, the world of journalism, for instance, um, the, the world of writing about um, issues of, of critical importance, moral importance, maybe not writing for explicitly Christian audiences, but writing as a Christian. Writing as a Christian in D.C., in the world of journalism in general, I think is easier in some spaces than others. But I think um, one thing that stood out to me very early, perhaps, as I began writing, was that I felt a calling perhaps to defend um, both unchosen and chosen forms of fidelity in my writing. And it's, I actually don't know if I've ever put this into words before, but I remember very early on writing an article in defense of marriage and um, marrying young, having children young. Uh, this probably would have been back in 2013. And getting torn apart by various progressive um, feminists for the article uh, that they So you were, you were Liz like. Brunig before Liz Brunig. <laughs> I'm sure I didn't right. write it nearly as well as she did. Uh, and it wasn't in the New York Times. But yes, it, it was an article about how one could, in fact, choose fidelity, monogamy mm -hmm. uh, in a young um time in your life and that that could be a choice that could bring joy and goodness with it but as I think about this book and a lot of other writing I've done it's it's been consistently writing in uh defense of various forms of of fidelity 
um, and, and a love that is consistent and constant in a world that is far from those things. Um, and I think what I was seeing and trying to put down in words for writers who, or sorry, for readers who are secular, uh, are many of the values that I saw demonstrated in my life as a young person, particularly uh, in the lives of my parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents, all of whom were um, heroes for me and, and did a lot of very hard work to serve their communities and to love each other well. Um, my great-grandparents were married young and um, celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary before my great-grandmother died. And then the same happened to my grandparents. They were very close to celebrating their 60th wedding anniversary before my grandmother passed away. And my parents just celebrated their 35th. So uh, patterns of monogamy and of love for each other. But then also I observed how their faith and their, um, their, their cultural and social fabric prompted them to love their place as well, to be good neighbors, to be good community members, and to take the love that they demonstrated within their own families and to let that have an echoing effect across the entirety of their, of their community. And so that too was something that continued to inspire me and that continued to um, try and find uh, space in my writing, I think. That's a, a wonderful phrase, by the way, uh, unchosen forms of fidelity. Um, and I think either that sort of immediately resonates, um, as it may, uh, for people who already have a kind of affinity for Wendell Berry and that kind of way of looking at life as a, as a gift one receives. Um, but it sort of seems to me also the kind of thing that does need to be defended and, and commended in ways that are, um, I don't want to necessarily um, say aesthetic necessarily, but, but the idea of being presented with a story that embodies these, with a life that embodies these virtues almost seems like the only way that, that one might commend this kind of, of life. I, I wanted to look at a couple of passages in the, in the introduction, a couple of paragraphs in the introduction, and I'll, I'll skip to it now just because you brought up this um, uh, idea of unchosen forms of fidelity. And, and it was towards the closing there where you wrote, you started your story in a graveyard, and I wanted to ask about that choice for one thing. But then here you say, now in a graveyard, I'm haunted by these questions. What do I owe the past? What do I owe the people who invested in the land that raised me? What do I owe the places where I'm from? Should I return for my own sake and for the sake of the communities that gave me life? And, and obviously that foregrounds this um, this choice that you made and your 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 uh, attempt to think through it again, um, but I was struck by the, the repetition of the word "oh." What do I owe? And and this this seems to me um, to be the sorts of questions that we're not likely to ask in the way our society is sort of organized, the kind of people we grow up to be, the kind of values that uh, are encouraged are not such that we would ask ourselves. Certainly not. What do I owe the past? Um, or the people who invested in me, et cetera. Um, and I, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that idea of obligation um, that that runs really counter to the idea of a sovereign autonomous self that 
makes decisions primarily for themselves, um, that seeks liberation from any kind of bonds or constraints. Um, there's, there's a whole way of life. I think that that's contained in this paragraph. Um, I, I just want to invite you to maybe elaborate a little bit on that or how you, how that's played out in your own life. One of my big goals and challenges with this book was to try and figure out a way in which I could present the idea of indebtedness and even hauntedness to a secular uh, audience. I wanted to see if I could help capture the feeling of what Edmund Burke describes as the democracy of the dead and paint it in a way that would be compelling to people who don't perhaps come from a Christian background. And that is one of the reasons why it does start in their graveyard, because there's a sense of hauntedness that um, hopefully comes through as you read the book, but that I think is very much a part of my faith and also the, the sort of thick strands of community that were present in the area where I grew up and that helped launch the entire process of writing the book. I got to do an event with the Russell Kirk Center back um, right as the book was came, coming out and I shared the story that actually was in the book itself originally and then was just cut for space about how when I was in college, I was out for a run in the Virginia countryside. Um, I think it was about my junior year of college. And as I was running, I caught the smell of wood smoke. And I had this extremely strong sense of my great grandfather's presence as if he were standing right next to me. And it made me stop in my tracks because I felt like I could hear and hear his voice and just smell and see him in that moment. And I actually started writing the book in my head right then, because what happened was in that moment of intense experience, whether um, I joked that Russell Kirk strongly believed in ghosts. So he probably thought I actually you know, experienced one. But but even if it was just one of those extremely powerful sense memories mm-hmm. that brings us back to our childhood, that in that moment, I. I began to feel both a sense of incredible gratitude for this person who had made up such a strong um, sense of, of place and of connection in my life um, and who lived such a, a beautiful Christian life, um, blessing his community, blessing his family, blessing the land itself, and had this moment alongside that sense of gratitude that that just created this ache in my soul of what do I do with this? How do I honor him? Because in that moment, I also remembered what I refer to as his first fruits crop. He would always grow a crop just to give away. Um, This was a form of love to his community and to his family that he would grow sweet corn and then harvest it and give it to us. And um, I began to ask myself at that moment, or began to formulate this this question in my own mind of what are my first fruits? What can I do to give back? If he fed me with his labor, with his love, how do I then serve and hopefully feed others in a in a similar fashion? Mm-hmm. Um, what are some ways that I can begin to try and do that work? 
um, the idea of hauntedness uh, is very evocative. Um, it reminded me of a line that, that stuck with me a long time ago, um, from a French writer named Michel de Certeau, who, who wrote about places haunted chiefly by memories. And uh, somewhere there, he says that haunted places are the only ones that people can live in. Um, and, and that always struck me as a rather profound observation. Um, well, I, I referenced Wendell Berry a moment ago, and, and I think he's a presence in, in your work, uh, quite clearly, um, as are others. And as you began thinking about the book, or, or maybe even uh, prior to that, as you began thinking about place and um, reflecting on its value and its worth, were there specific thinkers, obviously like Barry, that were especially influential? Uh, you've already mentioned a couple, and I'm wondering if you might point us in, in some directions that might be helpful for, for others as they attempt to think through these kinds of questions. Yes. Um, Pope Francis's work in Laudato yeah. Si and Fratelli yeah. Tutti have both been very pivotal as I've thought through the impact of our throwaway culture, as he terms it, which sees people in places. He, he focuses on people specifically as interchangeable, as disposable, as um, object rather than subject. And that has shaped our relationships with each other and our ability to love each other in profound ways. But I think that the, the problems we see in our society also stem from us seeing places in that same light as interchangeable, as disposable, as easily left behind. And so I wanted to consider the beauties and brokennesses of this particular place and to give as much of my attention to its particularity and its needs as possible. Um, and to write something about rural America that focused on one place and indeed not just one state, but one tiny, tiny okay. little town in an effort to elevate that idea of each place needing to be loved for its own sake and in its own way. Um, and I think Norman Wiersbe's work as well. He is um, professor of theology at Duke University Divinity School. Mm and uh, has written some wonderful works uh, on Barry's writing and um, some wonderful works as his own, such as From Nature to Creation, mm -hmm. which is putting forth an idea of kind of a Christian vision for understanding the natural world and our relationship with it. Um, I'm trying to, I, I always have these moments when I'm supposed to think of books and I, <laughs> all the books leave my brain <laughs> I, I can absolutely relate to that so please yeah no pressure on that score um the, the moment i'm asked to list anything that that category evacuates <laughs> yes. yeah. um, it's so true um so yeah worst is i think um a writer that will be familiar i think to some of our listeners um i think he spoke here at the study center several years ago um and and that's a great resource to have and i'll, I'll include some links to some of these writers um uh, in the, in the post that, that will carry this audio. Um, when, when did the question of place first, um, become paramount? Was it that experience of, of being sort of this novelty in DC culture of, of, of being someone from a small town who, um, whose experience was so foreign to so many of, um, of your colleagues at the time? 
I think when I first moved to Virginia for college, I had a few different experiences that showed me what I had left behind mm-hmm. and showed me indeed the difference in place in a way I haven't yet experienced. Mm-hmm. Not, not really in, in that full sense. And they were pretty uh, simple and funny, but, but what made them stand out was the way in which they jarred my inner sense of where I was quite deeply and thus showed me how much my place had shaped even my very basic assumptions. So for instance, um, the first time I went hiking uh, with a group of friends from college, I assumed that when we stepped out of the car and stepped into the woods, that we would smell pine. Mm-hmm. And and of course, um, in Virginia, there's lots of more deciduous trees. We don't have the evergreens out here. And so there was no scent of pine. And so um, I realized how much my perceptions of something as simple as hiking had been mm-hmm. shaped by place. Similarly, the first time I went on a camping trip with my uh, husband, he saw me piling socks and sweatshirts and such into my um, backpack. And he said, you do realize it's August. And I said, but there's going to be an elevation change. I need to be prepared because, you know, uh, camping in Idaho as a kid, the temperature would drop. 20 degrees, you know, every night we would be freezing in our sleeping bags. We had to pack a whole range of things. And he said, no, we're, we're not going to experience, <laughs> you don't need any of that. Um, so there were, there were some very simple things like that, that, that were just those um, simple reminders of what I had left, um, the lack of farmland, mm-hmm. the sense that I couldn't see sunsets anymore. Um, mm-hmm. Idaho mm-hmm. has some gorgeous mountains, but where I grew up, there was also a lot of flatland. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I missed the sunsets and the sunrises. So all of that to say, I think the homesickness formed as I saw these things that I assumed and then realized I assumed them because I was from somewhere and moving to a new place of ground slowly over time gave me new things to love, um, but also showed me those absences in a way I hadn't experienced before. Your work here does a great job of, of, of doing that, of holding up these, this family, your family, um, different members of the community that you highlight who have gone out of their way to uh, embody a different set of, of virtues. And I mean, one of the things that, um, struck me is that there's, there's a great deal of work involved, uh, to run against the grain, right? To, to run counter to, um, the, the formation that's implicit in the consumer society. Um, you, you note several farmers in, in Emmett or around Emmett who are trying to do things differently, trying to resist um, the encroachments of sort of, um, you know, um, agribusness models, uh, but it, it entails a, a great deal of, of time and effort and labor on their part. Um, one question that occurred to me is, is what are, how would you describe or how would you delineate the, the goods that we pursue when we, if we, if we are going to work to that degree, um, if we're going to, be thoughtful to the kind of degree that's necessary to, to resist the, this, this cultural grain. Um, 
what is it that we're after? What, what is the good we're seeking? Um, and is it, is it for the sake of the land? Is it for the sake of, of the community? Is it for the sake of the self? Um, and I suppose the answer is maybe just something we're all the above. Um, but yes. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Well, one thing I would say, all the people there in that community who are working so hard to cultivate health, I think one of the reasons they have to work so hard is because they, we are experiencing in our lifetime the collapse of the middle, I guess you could say. Um, Nisbet touches on this in the quest for community. I think one of the easiest examples for people to see and understand is when you look at newspapers in our time, we have a lot of incredibly small newspapers and we have giant ones like the New York Times, but a lot of the more regional newspapers and, and um, sources of news have really collapsed. What you see in a lot of communities are individuals in the state, Nisbet suggests, but all of the community associations that actually created local flourishing, such as churches, um, uh, other forms of local so- associations, mutual aid societies, mm-hmm. and the like have been lost. And in this particular community, I see the ways in which a lack of local and regional agribusinesses, um, a loss of um, institutional and associational health, a loss of perhaps local co-ops that might help some of the people like Lance Phillips, who's running an orchard by himself, not feel so completely isolated as he tries to fight for health. Um, these are things that need to be revived and, and strengthened if there's going to be a sense of, I think, harmony within the local community and that sense of not having to work entirely alone all the time, which over time, I think, um, becomes wearing to the point where a lot of people will give up. Um, understandably so. And so um, I think what we should be fighting for alongside the health of the land would be the health of those uh, spaces and places in which communal effort and uh, health begin to uh, be revived. I am thinking as you talk about this idea of frictionlessness as well, that that's frictionlessness is is sort of an attribute of the new um, that as things deteriorate or reveal their brokenness over time, whether it's a relationship or a, a or a product um, or a profession, that then the temptation comes to abandon it, to discard it for something new. And that one of the biggest challenges that we face when we fight to stay in a place and to love it well is just uh, a fight against its decay, its deterioration, or or um, a fight with the growing disillusionment that we might feel over the fact that it is not perfect, just as everything in our world is not perfect. And that's that's an inner battle. And it's one that I believe builds virtue and then helps that place to slowly be loved and maintained in a way that it wouldn't be otherwise. And it's one of the biggest reasons why as people have presented 
many excellent reasons to me for why we should leave place behind. I've tried to, you know, say yes, absolutely. Um, there are times and places in which we should leave the old behind for the new, but when do you stop? When do you stick? When do you say there is no other place that will be better than this place? And every place has to be loved long and well in order to be loved for what it is. Um, And that's been really interesting to see the fruit of those conversations as well. Um, One of the lines in in your introduction that I had wanted to draw attention to was that the, um, where you write that the only time things were mended and restored were the times when someone somewhere chose to stay. And, and it was the, the, the idea of, of mending and restoring. And I think even of sort of the, the ethos of Silicon Valley, the idea of, of moving fast and uh, breaking things, right? Disruption. All of this, um, you know, speaks of, of the new, of creating new, generating the new, uh, but of, of quickly moving on or not, not worrying about the consequences or what is disrupted, the people who are disrupted, um, not tending in the long run to institutions, to communities. And so this idea of repair and mending, I think is, um, is profoundly important, uh, of maintenance. Um, and, and it occurred to me that there was a, I was thinking about this this morning, um, that there's a, a almost a third um, class of people, I suppose, or a, a third kind of practice. So, you know, obviously, and I think you make this point in the book, uh, as you did just now, we, we require a degree of novelty, right? So the only thing that, that, that doesn't change is, is something that's dead. Um, and even then it kind of decomposes, right? But, but stasis is not our, our goal necessarily, but with some measure of stability that will encourage human flourishing, um, and so you, you need change, you need a degree of maintenance, but then there, there's, there's this work that needs to happen now because we've, we've gone so far in one direction that people who want to make the choice to, to remain, to, to repair, to mend, to try, um, more sustainable means of farming, for example, they find themselves as, as you say, without a community of support. So they're on their own, they're isolated. And so, this this third category of of those who will kind of build the networks necessary to make this the progress that we need towards these more sustainable um, ways of living, um, more sustainable forms of of um, of relating to the climate, relating to the land. Because right now we've we've eroded that middle, or I think it's at Bella who talks about mediating institutions, right? These sort of things that are between the individual and the state. And so that, that seems like it, I, and there's no question implicit in this. There's just this realization that even in sort of recognizing the problem and wanting to redress it, you're, one is asking people or even asking of oneself to, to step into this, this great void where the networks of support are just not present in order to live the kind of life one may seek for oneself, one's family, one's community. And and maybe the thing to do at the moment is just to be those people who kind of pioneer that and build up those new networks for for those who will come later. Um, And so we're stuck in this very difficult time, it seems. Yeah, Uh, I've thought about this a lot. The infrastructure is no longer there, even sometimes to have the imaginative vision to even know where to start. 
can be very challenging. I was thinking about this because I remember back when I was a young person and um, reading lots of Dickens. I actually think it was before that I was probably reading American Girl doll books. <laughs> I don't know if yeah. you have a daughter who would we, know. Um, we do, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, in Victorian society, there was this idea of calling hours. And it was a specific set time every day when either you would receive visitors or you would go out and visit others. And there was an entire system in place that enabled you to kind of enter this fabric and to be neighborly and to host others. And um, while I'm sure there were multiple drawbacks, and, and I think it was particularly catering toward a specific class of person, what I found remarkable about that and what I still find remarkable about that is that entire communities of people had set up a system for serendipitous encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, not entirely serendipitous. Mm-hmm. It was somewhat planned, but the whole, the whole way that it worked was to enable you to welcome strangers into mm-hmm. your home and for you to go see them and to build thick communal bonds through mm-hmm. those sorts of um, those sorts of relationships. And I've thought often to myself, is there a way I could bring these back? Mainly because as a young mother, I've realized how much people need not the play date, not the planned um, sort of thing that puts just another thing on your calendar, but that sort of serendipitous coming and going, mm-hmm. uh, the ability to say that I need to see someone right now and I can just drop by their house. Mm-hmm. And um, in our society, we just don't have the infrastructure for that. We don't have systems in place to encourage people to do that. Um, so that's just one example I've thought yeah. of often. How do you kind of build something like that back into society that's completely lost it? And in many ways has become so car-centric and so fragmented. Mm-hmm. We're adding layer upon layer of difficulty into our right. ability to connect with each other, I think. And, and the you mentioned the, the the car-centric nature of it. I think that so much of that is part of the problem in in a suburban context. I was reading a few months ago, um, revisiting some of Jane Jacobs' uh, work, and the kind of serendipitous encounters you're describing were just a function of being in in walking distance neighborhoods. Um, yeah. And and so now one finds themselves in the position of having to kind of artificially manufacture what would have to some degree happened more or less organically given just the shape of our cities, the way homes were laid out. Um, and I think that, that that's an interesting dynamic that I, I think I find recurring in, in, um, in various sectors of society where what had been sort of organically um, incorporated into people's lives, one way or another gets sort of chiseled out and then you recognize later on there was a loss and then it has to be reinserted, but it, but, but it now has to be reinserted in a way that's sort of artificial, requires more labor, uh, and becomes a project, right? Becomes something that almost, um, you know, if, if you're a working mom or if you're say a home mom and the idea of, of trying to coordinate these kind of encounters when they are not organically part of your community, um, it's like asking, just adding one more layer of work to someone who may already be very tired and exhausted. And, and, you know, um, yeah. yeah. 
I was thinking about this because I think uh, Ross Dalfit was talking about his wife's new book, which I'm extremely excited to read, which is all about motherhood. But she pointed out, I think, that when they moved to a more rural, isolated area, um, the impact that that had when she was postpartum was really difficult and very isolating. And I could see exactly what she meant. But the thing I found so remarkable and so saddening was that when I listened to the stories and read about the lives of my great grandparents and even my grandparents, um, being in a rural community did not necessitate isolation. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was because society at that point was still um, operating at a much closer level than it is now. So for instance, they still had a one-room schoolhouse and those one-room schoolhouses were um, operating probably for people within a 10 to 20 mile radius at most um, for the family farm surrounding that schoolhouse. And those people, according to a farmer I talked to, uh, formed little microcosms, little communities within the community as a whole. And then in addition to that, you had the church, you had the farmers who always worked uh, in common with each other. You had um, the neighbors who were visiting each other on a regular basis. It was actually quite bustling for an area that was still um, relatively sprawling. But today, everything has just concentrated so much more. It's become so much more isolated that I could see exactly what she meant. And I think um, making a decision to live in that community now carries with it a greater burden of connection um, and intentionality than it probably would have back even 50 to 70 years ago, I think. A part memoir in that it, it tells your own story, the story of your family, um, and your own, your choice, which I, I, I take to be in some respects a little kind of open-ended choice, right, of, of whether to go back or not. Um, and um, I know I I've been in here where I'm now in Gainesville for just under two years. And I had been, uh, I lived in central Florida prior to that or South central Florida, um, for about 20 years. And, and during that time as a young adult, I, I grew up in Miami. So I've kind of wandered my way up, um, Florida at this point. But, but once I was in Orlando, I, and I had, uh, come under the influence of writers like Wendell Berry and, and had decided I was going to be a sticker, right? So I, I was not going to be, um, you know, the person just sort of, transiently chases um after this that or the other thing and so um when when confronted with the what i would frame as a necessity of moving it, it was hard it was a, it was a, a challenging decision um to make and it almost felt like i was giving up on on something giving up on some ideal or or um you know a, a good that i had wanted to pursue um, and so, you know, your, your situation, I think, you know, is slightly different, but still it's a sort of wrestling with an ideal, uh, values that we, or virtues, I don't know, speak of values or virtues that are real and you know, we want to pursue and, and seek after. And then confronted with situations that are uh, making that very difficult, if not altogether, um, you know, impossible. Um, and so, and, and I, I taught a, a course on, a uh, class on place here at the study center, um, back in the fall. 
And, and this was, I think, a, a question for some of the students who were sort of thinking about how they reason through these kind of life choices. Um, so I'm wondering how this, the, the work of writing this book maybe clarified or, or maybe muddled that question. I don't know, uh, for you, um, you know, how would you, um, maybe counsel somebody who's, who's thinking through some of these choices, uh, with regards to you know, moving for the sake of a career, um, feeling perhaps, uh, that they don't have a community where they're living. So moving for the sake of perhaps finding a greater community, balancing that with, um, the, the, the goods that only come from sort of staying put in place over the long haul. Um, one thing that I've tried to emphasize when talking to people about the book is that it is not, it is not just about going home. Mm-hmm. Um, because for a lot of people, there might not be a very clear answer to the mm-hmm. question of what home even is. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of military families mm-hmm. um, and other people have experienced a lot of transience in their young lives. They might have a place that felt the most home-like, but even there not necessarily feel like there's one community they're called back to. And in a lot of those conversations, I've been reminded of Jim Elliott, the Christian missionary who uh, said, wherever you are, be all there, live to the hilt, every situation you believe to be the will of God. And I think in that there's once again, this urging to fidelity to embracing what is and not wishing for greener pastures um, somewhere else and acknowledging the fact that wherever you are and whoever you are with um, there will be imperfections and that part of being human is learning to love a place and its people despite those and and in and through those imperfections Um, and so people who I think are tempted to leave a place behind in an effort to find community elsewhere, I would just um, be hesitant to assume that there will be better community in in a new place. And um, indeed, in the last part of the book, as I talk about the the many questions I've had when I've thought about returning home, one of the primary ones has been making sure that I do not move back out of a sense of nostalgia for something mm-hmm. that does not in fact exist, probably never existed in the mm-hmm. first place because we can be very um, starry eyed in our, our feelings about the past oftentimes and our homesickness can mislead us. And so part of the reason I wanted to write this book was also to use it as an opportunity to discern and to consider um the entirety of of what my home community is, uh, its past, present, its problems, and its joys. And I think it was a very useful opportunity for me to um, consider some of those things and to make sure I wasn't just viewing it through a nostalgic sort of a lens. Um, But it is kind of funny because I was very hesitant to get into or to try and even come close to providing an answer to that question because I felt like in order to go through all the constant and thoughtful conversations my husband and I have had about whether we stay here or whether we move somewhere else would require probably 200 pages and so what's in the book is 
uh, an oversimplification at best mm-hmm. as, as most things are um, when they get into something like that, because um, obviously this book is my perspective mm-hmm. and um, my story, my husband's story, his, his career path, his, um, his loves, the fact that his family is here is also a huge part of this story. Um, but I couldn't include all of that. Um, and we are on the same team. We are partners in, in where we live. And so neither of us feel perfect peace at this point at the idea of moving to Idaho, but we haven't ruled it out either. I think one of the most difficult things for us is that we both deeply love and want to support my parents and see ourselves mm. as um, very much called to show them the same sort of love and support that they have shown to us. But at the same time, we have felt community in Northern Virginia that we've not experienced elsewhere before, mm. not just in the form of family, but also in the form of church and um, very, very close, deep friendships. And that's been a gift that uh, both of us have been surprised by and incredibly blessed by. So these things all complicate the picture. Um, I do have to note, though, that we are moving temporarily um, to England this fall because I got accepted to a master's program at Oxford. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. And so I'm going to be reading English overseas. It's only a nine-month program, which is one of the reasons we've decided to go ahead. Mm-hmm. I think a four- or five-year program would be a lot harder to contemplate, mm-hmm. but this is a way for me to kind of continue my education and, and dip my feet back into the world of academia mm-hmm. um, without uprooting <laughs> yeah. our family for, for too long. Um, but there is then, of course, this question that all our sweet friends and family members out here in Virginia are asking us, of, well, are you going to come back here once you're done mm-hmm. or are you going to move back to Idaho? And, mm-hmm. and we really don't know. Um, so maybe we'll be making a decision soon. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're just going to pray about it and take it one day at a time. <laughs> In, in a in a theological context, we uh, can at least avail ourselves of the idea of vocation, um, that there's a calling, um, and that yeah, I, I was um, struck recently, so Ivan Illich, uh, in his interpretation of the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, um, and what he finds there is, a, is an answer not to the question how we should act, but who is your neighbor, and what he he finds in that story is this invitation to, to have a kind of com- radical freedom to see um, our neighbor in anyone uh, that, that we might stumble across, uh, not just the people who are sort of bound to us by ethnic or racial or, or family, familial lines. Um, but he, he also is insistent on, on the fact that this is not a rule and that making it a rule um, somehow corrupts the spirit of, of, of what the commandment is, is implying, um, it, or this, this freedom that's implicit in, in this parable and the, the, the point of the parable. And so he opposes that to, uh, of a, a calling, right? It's a call. It's not, it's not a rule. And it seems to me with, with choices like this, with decisions that are morally fraught, um, 
that you know re you know require a great deal of wisdom and inevitably involve kinds of compromises um, that itself will recognize that there there's not a, a rule necessarily that we must um, abide by or answer to, but, but rather that there's a sense of calling that, that we're trying to be responsive to, um, which then, it, you know, actually grants, um, grants us the ability to look at the particularities of the situation. Right? So, so your answer is not mine, nor is it the, um, you know, that of our neighbors, but um, as we wrestle with the specific question, but your story might inform mine um, and the way you thought through it might, provide new perspectives that inform my my ability to hear a call where I might not have heard one before. Mm. I'm not sure if that if that language is is helpful. I think I think it, it does at least cast the, the decision in a different light. I think so. And it's it's reminding me of a recent edition I, I put together of my email newsletter Granola, in which I looked at what I called paragons of rootedness and my mm goal with that was to perhaps put forth some examples of rootedness that do not involve staying in the place where you mm -hmm. were born or grew up and did not involve never um, moving about, but actually um, gave examples of people who loved a place well mm -hmm. and were advocates for it and who bore fruit in that community over a long period of time. So Dorothy Day, Fannie Lou Hamer, mm -hmm. Um, George Washington Carver and um, Jane Jacobs actually were, were some right. of the primary ones who came to mind. And one thing that I loved about Jane Jacobs was that she did not stay in New York City for her entire life, but all the work and advocacy she did in New York, she then brought with her to Canada and applied all of those same lessons, all of those talents, her expertise went toward serving that uh, new community that she became a part of. And so this idea too, that many of the talents and gifts we've been given, the vocation that we might have is also, I think, a supple and a flexible thing, um, that we can, we can perhaps bring with us into whatever new context we might be, um, a part of. I was talking to someone about this recently about um, I think in, in his book, You Are What You Love, uh, James Smith talks about, um, how liturgies can form kind of the hum or the background of our lives. Uh, they form the beat or the rhythm that the, we then build into our lives. And this is something I really appreciated because I thought about how in, in many ways I can take the hum, the fabric, the rhythm of my great grandmother and seek to apply those to my life in Virginia. And it won't look exactly the same, mm -hmm. but it's a way of carrying forward those traditions in a way that hopefully blesses a new community um, and that brings her forms of service to bear in a place that really needs those forms of service and love. Yeah, yeah that's well put. Um, being mindful of, of the time, I want to ask me just, Two more questions. Um, one is is a question that may not have an answer yet, but I was wondering how, if, if you know how this book has been received in in Idaho or in your community or um, in the in the region, if, if there's been some feedback that you've gotten from there. Yeah, I've talked to a couple of 
journalists from back home um, who really appreciated and liked the book. The bits about suburbanization were extremely poignant for Mm -hmm. them as they've seen it unfold. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the women I talked to said her husband is a returner. And so some of those um, categories I present in the book um, of people, uh, returner is a, someone who's from a community, leaves it, and then returns mm-hmm. with the, a definite uh, desire to improve or to serve the community that they are returning to. Um, I've talked to uh, several family members and It was interesting. My dad said that in a conversation with my grandfather, who features in the book, um, he said that a friend of his was deeply saddened by the prospect of small farms being lost Um, and that that was almost rather depressing for him. And so that made me sad in a sense. Um, I don't I I hope it's not a depressing read for people, um, but I do understand how perhaps some of these things um, when they when you see them on a page, they they maybe become more um, urgent or sharp than um, when you're just observing them around you. Um, It was fun. I uh, got an email from one reader with, I think, just the subject line rooted and it was. Uh, verse from one of the epistles um you being rooted and grounded in love uh and i i I cannot quote the entire Mm -hmm. verse but it is a reminder that we are rooted and grounded in the love of christ in our faith Mm -hmm. not just in our circumstances which then was a wonderful opportunity to talk at length about the difference between um talking about fidelity to place and and how it is as you point out something that we must use discernment to um, decide when our ideals must be sacrificed to or or submitted to the the circumstances the real um, life challenges we face and the fact that our faith forms the greatest roots that we could have and that they are eternal roots and that we are ultimately citizens of a heavenly kingdom not an earthly one Um, And I thought that was something that because this book doesn't get as much into my Christian faith, perhaps Mm -hmm. as it could, um, could be lost for a lot of readers. And Mm -hmm. hopefully, hopefully we'll stand out in conversations around the book. Well, my my second question was, how how do we as Christians think about the relation between commitment to place and the kind of pilgrim ethos that is so so important to Christian spirituality? the the idea of being aliens and strangers, uh, exiles, these metaphors that um, you know really infuse our understanding of, of Christian identity, all mm. suggest a kind of uh, of transience. Um, and I, I would see how maybe someone like your reader may may think that uh, somehow intention or maybe even in opposition to the idea of of rootedness or seeking out a rootedness in place in this, in this world, as it were. Um, and, and I was just going to ask how you had thought about it, or if, if you had thought along those lines or, or how you would encourage us to think about those two, one uh, kind of series of, of metaphors that structure our identity as Christians. And then the, the practice of remaining in place, seeking to, be committed to place value in place without allowing it to become um, 
you know, as, as anything, any love that we disorder, that we, we um, wrongly order can become idolatrous. Yeah. It seems there's a very strong temptation to become tribalistic in our, our love of place to, or, or to see it as something we own, perhaps to begin to develop our identity around it and to, um, begin to see places once again as object, not as subject and ourselves as, um, members of those places in a way that is not just one defined by stewardship, but rather defined by um, ownership and, and by exclusion. And I think that as Christians, insofar as they are called to be stickers, um, it is in order to be ambassadors and servants and stewards. But all of those postures are ones in which we are not forming a clique or excluding or even finding our sense of identity in those places, but rather our seeking to be um, servants of Christ in those communities. And um, the primary purpose of loving them for the long haul, I think, as I put it in the book, is that in most instances, I think um, that is a pattern that we can see in, in the scriptures and elsewhere that enables us to see them best and through that seeing through that long full attention to love them best um obviously there are multiple examples also in in the bible of of people who move um saint paul is um apostle paul is is one of those examples but i was very struck as i was talking to people and and writing about this um the uh, the people who don't get a lot of attention perhaps but who form those um, strong roots perhaps for for various communities and people in the church uh, Lydia for instance Tabitha um, I was thinking about uh, Joseph of Arimathea and some others who um, provide through their sense of belonging in a place uh, sort of the fabric of belonging for other Christians or other people, the scriptures who come along um, later on or or in, in the instance of Lydia form the, the basis of a church then to be formed through their hospitality, through their rootedness. Um, but in each and every case, I think too, there's, there's this strong sense of humility and not necessarily finding one's identity again in, in that community ultimately, but ultimately seeing oneself as a, as a citizen of heaven and being willing, I think, to um, hold one's membership in place loosely is probably an important part of most of our, our Christian walk. But um I've been reading Robert McFarland's book, Landmarks, and he talks about parochialism and um, how, in fact, there's a form of parochialism that is not about limiting one's gaze or, or becoming tribalistic, but actually is a form of attentive love that, that is universal, actually, and that it enables you to um, find and define universal principles in a very important way. Uh, and there's something he said that I 
have been thinking about a lot in terms of how I think Christians might be called to rootedness. He says of an author that he um, is talking about in this section of the book um, that her personal parish, the area of territory that she loved, walked and studied over time, led to knowledge cubed rather than knowledge curbed. Hmm. And yeah. as I've thought about that, I, I think that is what I'm trying to convey with the example of my great grandfather in the book. Um, that long love in one place can lead to knowledge cubed rather than lo- knowledge curbed and to love cubed rather than love curbed. Mm-hmm. And that oftentimes I think we as Christians um, want to all be uh, these superheroes of the faith who travel long distances and who are um, superstars and reaching millions for the gospel. Yet, I think the quiet faithfulness of, of someone who sticks can do as much or more for spreading the gospel, perhaps, than um, the person who is constantly moving about. Uh, both are important, but I think the one is probably more appealing than the mm-hmm. other for the reasons we already talked about regarding mm-hmm. the imperfections of place and the difficulties of maintenance. And so we all get drawn into the idea of of the sojourner and, and don't consider the calling that we might have to be simple gardeners mm-hmm. um, in one community, to be puddle glums, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> He's right. the exa- other example yes, that yeah. often comes to mind. <laughs> right, right. A great one. Um, well, thank you so much, Gracie. I, I really appreciate you taking the time um, to speak with us. And um, I'll add links to all of the great resources and to your newsletter, Granola, which is a wonderful uh, thing that can hit your inbox um, every first of the month, if I remember correctly. Um, and so I, I appreciate your time and um, best wishes in your move to England and, and your program and for your family. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it.